Thank you so much. How about a hand for Hal? Isn't he doing a great job? Thank you, Hal. It's great to be here. And uh, how about a round of applause for the Renaissance Hotel? Aren't they doing a great job? I just love this place. My first time here. It's a nice hotel. Really, really first class. The towels are so thick I can barely close my suitcase. God, it's good to be in a room full of drunks. My name is Argus, and I'm an alcoholic. Ah, that felt good. That really felt good. Uh, I want to especially welcome anybody here from Los Angeles. Uh, I go to AA and CA so I can enjoy LA without the DA. (laughs) Okay. And I want to invite you all, whenever you come out to Los Angeles, to drop in and see me. Uh, I've uh, invited Earl many times to, whenever he's in Southern California. There's just a few night meetings on the weekends in Beverly Hills AA, and I want to invite you all to stop by and see some of the ritziest sobriety you'll ever see in Beverly Hills AA. <laughs> all over the country at AA meetings, you're supposed to say three things on the podium. What it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. In Beverly Hills, we say, what I was wearing, what happened, and what I'm wearing today. So do come out and sample some of it. It's too showbiz. The speakers are like, Hi, my name is Sid. I represent Bob, and he's an alcoholic. It's just too much. And as you can imagine, you know, it's not the lowest bottoms you ever hear from the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon. This is Beverly Hills AA. How low did your life have to go to wind up in Beverly Hills AA? (laughs) You should hear us up there. The night I hit my bottom in Bel Air. There I was back in 1982, sitting in the jacuzzi upstairs in the master bedroom with the sky roof open on Mulholland Drive, the lowest night of my life. I had an ounce of cocaine in one hand. I had a quart of Louis XIII cognac in the other. And I'm sitting in that hot tub with four beautiful women. But thanks to AA... I never have to live like that again. <laughs> you know, so come out and visit us. That's the whole idea. You know, I was asking my daddy, he's a minister here, uh, what, what could I share? What, how could I connect with doctors? And he said, well, there's this, you know, doctors are professionals just like you, Argus, you know. And, uh, you know, we both have our greatest enemy is our employer, ourselves, you know. And uh, my daddy told me about one of these clubs where you act like you're a cowboy out in Utah, where, uh, like the Billy Crystal movie, what was it called? City Slickers, right? And there was a doctor, a lawyer, two Americans, a Frenchman and an Englishman, sitting around a campfire one night, just drinking it up, having a good old time, okay? And, uh, and everyone was just connecting, as alcoholics do. And toward the end of the evening, the Frenchman downed an entire bottle of French wine, threw it up in the air, pulled out his pistol, shot the bottle, and screamed, Vive la France! Well, the Englishman from our mother country didn't want to be outdone. 
So the Englishman polished off an entire bottle of Gilby's British gin, threw the empty bottle up in the air, pulled out his pistol and shot it and screamed, God save the Queen! Well, the two Americans didn't want to be left out, so the doctor pulled out a 12-ounce bottle of old Milwaukee beer. Ice cold beer. I opened it, chugged it down, threw the bottle up in the air, pulled out his pistol, shot the lawyer and said, it just doesn't get any better than this. Right. You know? Right. Should it have been an HMO director with a... <laughs> okay. So anyway, it's wonderful to be here tonight and wonderful to be sharing uh, with all the visitors. I want to thank Hal Boris for flying me in from California to welcome you to Oklahoma. It's... Uh, <laughs> It's a, because we all flew in and we all took our chances, you know. You landed Will Rogers Airport, you know. <laughs> this is the only airport ever named after somebody killed in a plane wreck. <laughs> right? It's, you know, it's no big deal. It's all, it's all former cotton land. You can miss the runway and not feel a thing, you know. <laughs> but, you know, we always get these California stewardesses that are angry that they, they can have better places to go, you know. Attention, ladies and gentlemen. We're about to, like, you know... Land in Oklahoma. Please set your watches back to 1947. <laughs> so, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. And it's important for you to know where you are. First of all, I in particular, I know everyone from California, enjoyed something you had today that escaped a lot of you. It's called weather. <laughs> Gee, that was nice. You know, something different. <laughs> You know, if it's 110 degrees in Oklahoma City, it's 78 in Los Angeles. If it's 25 degrees in Oklahoma City, it's 78 in Los Angeles. <laughs> but there's 2 million hardworking, you know, really dedicated, driven, church-going people in Oklahoma City. There's 78 in Los Angeles. <laughs> now, right? Whenever you think of L.A., we're all, always think of Cato Kalin on the witness stand. That was us, okay? That was us. I've lived there for 25 years. I've morphed into Cato Kalin along with everyone else. Because you know? remember, he was clueless, self-obsessed. His hair was perfect. <laughs> when Marshall Clark was trying to get a word out of him, that was us up there. Cato? Cato! This is about me, isn't it? Cato, where were you between 9 and 12? Uh, the third grade. Where are you from, Cato? Wisconsin. What's the capital? W. <laughs> right. See, Cato Kalin is living proof that sometime back in the 60s, Gilligan and Ginger had a child. Right. That is us up there. That is us. And all you doctors in this room, you had to study. I'm, look, I'm University of Oklahoma. I, we had pre-med guys in the ATO house, all right? I know what you guys had to go through, passing microbiology, getting a B, getting an A. It was tough. Here's a typical 12th grade math question on the Southern California SAT. Yeah. A train leaves Los Angeles for Phoenix at 6 o'clock in the morning at 80 miles an hour. At the same time, a train leaves Phoenix, Los Angeles for Phoenix at 100 miles an hour. 
Los Angeles and Phoenix are 400 miles apart. The trains will collide at an exact time and distance between the two cities. How do you feel about that? And remember, there's no such thing as a wrong feeling. So that's us. I just want to say for you visitors, that, that's just L.A., you know. If, any, if anything gets too troubled, we, we hire Johnny Cochran and we're out, you know. <laughs> that was the best lawyer I, I ever saw, you know. When Marsha Clark got finished with the jury, I thought O.J. did it. But by the time Johnny Cochran got finished, I thought I did it. <laughs> you know? So that's just L.A. for you. We're just all out there having a good time. And uh, but the recovery's excellent. And my point of this whole intro is the is to invite you to, to invite you to Beverly Hills AA and, and come by and, and see me there because I'm always at the, the Rodeo meeting on uh, Saturday night in uh, Southern California. So welcome, welcome, glad to have you here, particularly in Oklahoma City, my hometown. Uh, we, uh, of course, I'm sure some of you saw the uh, the bombing site that uh, was just dedicated about uh, four or five months ago by President George Bush. Uh, the, uh, they kind of stalled and delayed and allowed, it, allowed him to do the dedicating because ever since the uh, Oklahoma Senate passed a law castrating two-time sex offenders, Bill Clinton won't set foot in Oklahoma. <laughs> and I'm telling you, as a comedian, I miss that man. I miss him with every fiber of my being. Every night when Clinton was president, by golly, the news was like an Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> the Republicans would just about get him. Dun, 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 dun. And Bill would just get away from him. Oh, man. And, you know, it's Dan Burton and Ken Starr, and he'd throw things over to slow him down. You know, triple the economy, double the stock market. Dun, dun, dun. And here comes a big boulder. Monica. Dun, dun, dun. And they have Hillary after him. Dun, 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 dun. He'd throw U.S. Senate seat, U.S. Senate seat. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, yeah, for eight years we had a president who thought that safe sex meant that Hillary's out of town. <laughs> but I, I bring him up because he's a part of a dying breed. There's only three Southern Democrats left. Me, Bill Clinton, and the great Barry Switzer. <laughs> we believe in free trade with the mother country, Great relations with African Americans, and we're just plain cavaliers. Okay? I want the folks from Britain to realize there's one person in this room that knows the United States of America was founded not by immigrants looking for a better way of life. We were founded by the English Civil War. The Puritans settled the North. The Puritans became the Whigs, who would become the Republicans. Republicans believed that life is like a box of chocolates, and you can't have any. <laughs> then, on the other hand, and I mean real Republicans, not you Southern Republicans. You know what I'm talking about. Real Republicans. All right. Then the Southern Democrats. We were the Cavaliers, the Royalists. You know, from the Carolinas all the way west to Oklahoma and Texas, as far west as we could grow cotton. We had a good time. You know, we have another motto, and that motto is this: I can resist anything except temptation. <laughs> and I had a dream the other night that the three of us left: Barry Switzer, Bill Clinton, and myself. I died in a plane crash. We were sitting outside of St. Peter's waiting room. The voice comes over the outside speaker and says, Coach Switzer, go to room number one now. And the great OU and Dallas Cowboy coach went into room number one. The door slammed shut. He turned around, he looked up, and there was a Doberman pincher frothing at the mouth with hydrophobia barking at him. 
The voice comes over the intercom and says, Barry, you have sinned and must spend eternity in this room alone with your new friend here. The voice came over the outside intercom and said, Argus Hamilton, room two, now! I walked into room number two, the door slammed shut. I turned around, I looked up, and there is a gorilla in heat grinning at me. Right? It's like I never left West Hollywood. And, uh, and the voice says, All right, Argus, you have sinned and must spend eternity in this room alone with your new friend here. Finally, the voice came over the outside intercom, and in the cadence of that great Southern Baptist hymn, the voice said, All right, Bill Clinton, it's time to walk that lonesome valley and walk it by yourself to room three, now. So Clinton walks into room number three, the door slams shut. Three bolts go down. He turns around, he looks up, and there's a pop singer Madonna standing in front of him in a negligee from Fredericks of Hollywood. The voice comes over the intercom and says, Madonna, you have sinned. But let me say, as a fellow Southern Democrat, I am so glad that Bill Clinton opened up his offices in Harlem because there he'll be at least three miles from the nearest Republican. Bill Clinton will go down in history as the first white Southerner to ever move to Harlem for his own personal safety. (laughs) I may join him any day soon. (laughs) Well, it's... uh, it's getting ahead of my story, but uh, that uh, lust does enter into things after you get sober. It does. I think under the U.S. Constitution now, if anything happens to Bill Clinton, Gary Condit becomes ex-president. <laughs> well, you know, he, he's lied about the mistresses. He's lied about the, the affair with the intern. You know, If found guilty, he could get four to eight years in the White House. <laughs> But I'm getting ahead of myself. I was born in the great state of Oklahoma down in the southeast area of Oklahoma called Little Dixie. And uh, I was born in Poto, Oklahoma, if anyone's from southeast Oklahoma. Thank you very much. Uh, It's not as hip as wherever you are. Our pedestrian lights flash mosey and don't mosey. (laughs) Now I live in West Hollywood where they flash Prance and Ponder. At least in Oklahoma City, the traffic lights are red, yellow, and green. In West Hollywood, there's salmon, banana, and lime. There are 20 men for every woman who live in West Hollywood. But women do not do their husband hunting around there. All right, okay. The odds are good, but the goods are odd. <laughs> the point is, I was born down in southeast Oklahoma, uh, in, a, in an era. I was born in November 8, 1951. I'll be 50 this fall. And it was a time right after World War II when, uh, when a lot of the, the greater South was, was not exactly all that engaged with the rest of the country. You know, President Bush the other day, he made me laugh when uh, he stood on the... And I like President Bush. I really do. And uh, I, I pray to God for thanks. Every day he's got adult supervision. Uh, <laughs> you know, namely the guy I really like, Dick Cheney. Yeah. Dick Cheney. Sounds like something Hillary ought to have around Bill. But, uh... But, uh... uh, All right. All right. Now, wait a minute. Don't worry, Baptist. That's as dirty as we're going tonight. All right? You Yankees have got to... Remember, we are in God's country. Baptists live in the constant fear that somewhere, someone is having a good time. They won't even make love standing up. They're afraid God will think they're dancing. 
they can preach that gospel, those Baptists, I tell you. Out in Orange County, we got a Southern Baptist preacher who absolutely has people riveted. He has the power to heal. He has the power to heal. And people uh, turn on his channel 56 down in Orange County just to watch him. And about a year ago, he's found a guy on the front uh, row with a broken arm. He walked right up to it on television, put his hands on him, and healed the guy. Southern Baptist preacher walked back, saw a guy with a broken leg, put his hand on it and healed it. Walked all the way to the back of the congregation, saw a guy in a full body cast. Walked up to the fellow and the fellow said, Stay away from me, preacher. I'm on workers' comp. <laughs> you know. But I, I'm, I'm like a lot of you doctors by now. I'm Anglican. Uh, <laughs> that's for you, the Methodists and the Episcopalians. We're the, we're the Church of England branch of, uh, of life. And... Uh, Sometimes we'll get Calvinists accidentally walk into my church. I mean, 15 and a half years ago, you know, I'm hitting a base pipe of cocaine in a small motel with, with, with some of the roughest element of Los Angeles. And today, by God's grace and His program, I get to stand on the pulpit of All Saints Episcopal Church in Beverly Hills and read Scripture and lead the prayers of the people. It is, it's quite a miracle at All Saints Episcopal and Church and, and trust company in Beverly Hills. <laughs> it's quite a church. Yeah, for communion, they offer you a wine list. <laughs> so, uh, I'll tell you two quick ones on that. You know, we had a Southern Baptist accidentally walk into our uh, our congregation one day, and and see Methodists and Episcopalians. You know, since 1707, actually since 1562, worship out of the Book of Common Prayer, whether they know it or not. We like ritual. You know, with the introit. The, the uh, you know the uh, Apostles' Creed, and the communion ritual. You know we're very ritualized. That's how we get connected to God in the worship service. The Baptists like to participate. You know it's another way of connecting. One day we had a Southern Baptist accidentally walk into All Saints Episcopal in Beverly Hills. He's a tourist, and right in the middle of the introit, you know, Almighty God unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, no secrets are hid. The Baptist yells, Hallelujah! Four hundred Episcopalians turn around and look at this Baptist. Right in the middle of the Apostles' Creed, you know, I believe in God, the Father of Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. The Baptist yells, "Hallelujah!" Four hundred Episcopalians jerk their heads and stare, the, stare a hole through this Baptist. Finally, during the communion ritual, you know, on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he broke it, the Baptist yelled, "Hallelujah!" An Episcopalian usher walked up to the Southern Baptist and said, "Excuse me, sir, would you mind restraining yourself during worship?" The Southern Baptist says, But I have found the Lord! The Episcopalian usher said, Not here, you didn't. <laughs> now, the other side of that is Methodism. Now, Methodist is the Church of England on horseback, okay? Right? They got the uh, coach, they got the better songs. You know, they got the Coatsbury hymnal, they got the prayer book, and they got the horse, and they're just going there. You know? They were the ones fighting the Baptists all the way across the 34th parallel, you know. The Methodists would arrive on horse, the Episcopalians would arrive by, by colt, by the train, and it was, it, was, it was a fight between Calvin and Elizabeth all the way across the 34th parallel from Charleston to Los Angeles, you know. Well, Methodists added a wrinkle called perfectionism, something we actually do in, in recovery. The, the more good I can do, the more spiritual power I attain. It just works that way in recovery for me anyway. And right here in Oklahoma City one day in 1986, one of the great preachers in this area, Dr. Max Stowe, was walking out over here on 16th Street in Robinson, about a mile away. And he saw one of his parishioners in a Mercedes-Benz convertible crying with his head on the steering wheel. And Dr. Stowe walked up to him and said, What's wrong with you? This is 
This is December 1986. And, oh, uh, yeah, and, the, and the guy says, well, preacher, I've, I've just lost everything. Oil has gone from $37 a barrel to $9 a barrel. You know, My wife is going to leave me because I cheat on her. I'm no good anyway. She's taking the kids with her. I've got nothing left to live for. I'm going to, I just, I've decided to, to go home and blow my brains out. Dr. Stowe, the Methodist minister, gathers himself and he prays as hard as he can and with that Methodist perfectionism gets the answer and says, okay, son, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and go home and blow my brains out. He says, yep, do it. But promise me before you do it, you'll do one thing. He says, tell me, what do you want me to do? Want you to promise me before you blow your brains out, you'll open the Bible to just any page and do the first two words you see. Open the Bible to just any page, do the first two words I see. Then I can blow my brains out. Then you can blow your brains out. He said, okay, okay, I'll do it. So about a year goes by. Dr. Stowe doesn't see the fellow. Thinks the worst may have happened. Finally, about a year later, the guy pulls in in the back seat of a Rolls-Royce convertible, wearing a silk suit, diamonds on his fingers, and the preacher says, You're alive! He said, Thanks to you, I'm alive, preacher. He says, You did what I told you? He said, I did what I told you, and now I'm the richest man in the Southwest. He said, Well, what'd you do? He said, Well, I went home, opened my Bible to just any page, and I just did the first two words I saw, and here I am. It's just wonderful. And Dr. So says, Jesus, be praised. If you don't mind telling me, though, what were the first two words you saw? And he looked up and he said, Chapter 11. All right? So, so welcome here. That's the point. Welcome to Oklahoma. Now, let me, let me tell you about myself. I was born in southeast Oklahoma, down in uh, Little Dixie. Uh, by the way, you are not in the Midwest. You are not in the heartland. That's why I brought up George W. Bush. He said he's going home to Texas to the heartland. Okay? Let's do a map of the United States of America. Okay? Here, let's Y'all don't mind over here. God gave us that panhandle. <laughs> to make Amarillo feel like a real woman, that's why I had to... Uh, uh, sorry, Baptist, that's number two. All right, okay. So anyway, that's where you are. Oklahoma, for you visitors, is two Choctaw Indian words. Oklahoma and Homa, meaning at least we're not Arkansas. All right. All right. Where are the Arkies? <laughs> I'm sorry, if you're from Arkansas, I apologize. I'm, I'm not here to denigrate Arkansas. And if you're from Arkansas, denigrate means to laugh at or make fun of. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Even. <laughs> See, out there in politically correct Los Angeles, I am legally allowed to tease my fellow Southerners on the stage. It's the only group I get to tease, you know. That's the only inventory I get to take as an alcoholic for my own folks, you know. And that's, that's a good feeling. I saw down in uh, Louisiana a week ago Thursday, our cousins in Louisiana, the legislature there passed a law preventing teachers from teaching evolution in schools in Louisiana. <laughs> and I was laughing. I was thinking, you know, what a moot point for Louisiana. <laughs> and I, and I, and I, I love these people. I love these people. They're all, they're all long-time cousins of mine. Let's face it, you know, you know, evolution cannot be taught in Louisiana until evolution has occurred in Louisiana. <laughs> you know? I love it. 
And then, of course, our cousins down in Texas. Uh, you, you visitors, just believe me. For, unless you're from Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Georgia, or Florida, Florida State, you don't know what a rivalry is. Texas, Oklahoma is like nothing you'll ever experience. It's just absolutely insane. I graduated from the University of Oklahoma, uh, where I majored in Coors. Uh, I had a 3.2. <laughs> right? The University of Oklahoma, better known as the Betty Ford Preschool. <laughs> and uh, our, our main goal every year was to beat Texas. And their main goal every year was to beat Oklahoma. And we meet, we meet in the Cotton Bowl. It is like no... You know, I, to be truthful with you, I've been afraid to go back there sober 15 years. I, it's just too much energy. That is the absolute truth about it. It is too much, you know. Of course, we've got enough things to talk about in Texas. There's the Dallas Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys have to play all their games this next year on a dirt field because they snipped all the white lines and smoked all the grass. <laughs> I just love them. I love the Dallas Cowboys. You know? They bring back the 70s for me, you know what I mean? <laughs> I call them South America's team. <laughs> You baby boomers remember the 70s, don't you? Drink, snort, dance, make love. 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 What's your name? Who cares? The disease is five years away. Do the hustle. Well, there's a different hospital for everything we used to do. You know? It's true. You know, I hated cocaine. I just loved the way it smelled. Yeah. You know? But I tell young people every night at the comedy store on the Sunset Strip, I beg them, stay away from cocaine. I say, it'll ruin your drinking. Okay, you know? uh, people will find out you have a problem 20 years ahead of time. <laughs> Don't rush it. <laughs> There's plenty of fun for you to have. You know, because that stuff, it, it turned me awful. By the time I got finished with that stuff, by the time that stuff got finished with me, I became the kind of guy that would steal your dope and help you look for it. <laughs> And, you know, what is it? What are we? How are we different? My, for me, you know, uh, you, there are quantitative ways to tell the difference. You know, a, a, big, a big street view visitors here in, uh, in Oklahoma City is May Avenue. It's the main drag here in Oklahoma City. And, the, and for you folks that are, are kind of visiting our convention, there's a difference between your brain, normal brains, and our brains. Okay? Let's say one of you normal people in here tonight get pulled over on May Avenue for driving under the influence of alcohol. Okay? By, the night, by the time a normal person gets tested, arrested, thrown in jail, you're standing in front of a judge the next morning with a hangover, a normal person at that point will say, I shouldn't have gotten drunk. That's called sane thinking. Not alcoholics like me. At that point, I'll be saying, I shouldn't have taken May Avenue. <laughs> That's my thinking. <laughs> I got a brother in Cocaine Anonymous out in Venice, California who told this story, his name is Brother Leon, great man. He talked about, speaking of doctors, a doctor at the Harvard Business, Harvard Medical School. The Harvard Medical School was about to write a treatise on the difference between a normal drinker, a problem drinker, and an alcoholic. And he was just busted. He could not think of the right way to start, a way to get going. But he happened to have a friend who was a salesman, you know, and a golfer, smooth guy. And he talked to him about it, and the salesman said, you just come with me one afternoon, all right? We're going to drive into Boston, and I'm going to show you the difference, doctor, between a regular drinker, a problem drinker, and an alcoholic. So the doctor jumped into the 
convertible with a guy, and they, they drove uh, into a Charleston area and walked into an Irish bar from the side. Before walking into this Irish bar, the salesman walked over to the dumpster, pulled out an empty bottle of whiskey, made sure it was empty, and he trapped three flies inside it and killed all three flies, suffocated them. He said, now let's go inside. I'll show you the difference. So they walked inside, stood at the bar. Being an Irish bar, a fight erupted at the pool table about every ten minutes. Okay? They waited for the first fight at the pool table to erupt, and everybody at the bar ran over and joined the fight. While they were fighting at the pool table, the salesman, with the doctor watching, pulled out the three empty flies and put one in three different drinks. He'd been watching these guys. So when they returned back to their drinks and everything settled down, the first guy looked down and saw the fly in his drink. He said, Hey, bartender, for crying out loud, there's a fly in my drink. Would you take this thing back? Give me another glass and give me a free drink for crying out loud or I'll report you to the health authorities. The salesman looked at the doctor and said, Now that's a normal drinker. Okay. The second guy looked left, looked right, picked up the fly, threw it away, drank the drink. The salesman said to the doctor, Now that's a problem drinker. Okay. Finally, they looked over to the third guy. And he's holding the fly upside down with his mouth down, shaking it, going, All right, spit it out, you little son of a bitch! Spit it out! Spit it out! The salesman said, Now that's an alcoholic. It does something for me. It always has. It always did. It always will. But it's, it's part of our culture. It's part of a greater Southern culture. I mean, you know, I saw uh, one of those articles in uh, Genetics magazine. I, I find out all these facts over the Reuters wire in a Genetics magazine covered, uh, you know, descendants of Great Britain. You know, right here's the British flag with the three colonies right above it, you know. <laughs> and they were talking about descendants. They, they said, you know, one out of every four Scots is, is prone to alcoholism. Uh, they said one out of every two Welsh one out of every eight Englishmen, four out of every two Irishmen. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that's one thing that L.A. taught me. L.A. taught me multiculturalism, you know, because, you know, from here to Texas all the way to the Carolinas, we have, we're raised with Anglo-Saxons, African-Americans, and Native Americans. That's our world, essentially. At least it was up until about 1976 when I took off. You know, that was the world here. And that's what we got used to. About two years ago, though, I'll say this for Southern California, I got educated. The very same day, a friend of mine, Oprah Winfrey, got educated on her show. Okay, we're both the exact same age, baby boomers, Southerners. She hosted the greatest golfer who may have ever lived, Tiger Woods, on her show. And Oprah, with the same set of assumptions that I have, looked at Tiger and said to Tiger, this is all word for word, Tiger, what's it like? being such a tremendous young role model for African-American youth. And Tiger, being an L.A. kid, sounding like an L.A. kid, said, well, actually, I don't like, you know, consider myself African-American. And Oprah said, what do you consider yourself? He said, some of you will know this, Coblin Asian. She said, Coblin Asian, what's that? He said, it's like a word I made up. She said, what does it stand for? He says, well, it means I'm part Caucasian, part black, part Indian and part Asian. You like, you know, put it all together, that makes me Coblin Asian. And I'm watching this thinking, that's beautiful. We could all play that game, couldn't we? For instance, I happen to be part barbarian, <laughs> part alcoholic, part womanizer, and part golfer. You put it all together, that makes me English. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> See, 
And I know I was born, I know I was born predisposed to alcoholism because you all hear pitches and you know how it goes, but I know I was born predisposed to alcoholism. And my first hero uh, was James Bond, you know. You know, a glass in one hand, a blonde in the other, gambling, drinking, killing. Yeehaw! You know? <laughs> yeah! <laughs> I mean, I've never had a drink in my life, and just watching James Bond fixed me, you know. You know? I, just, I just knew that was the solution. Now I see where he's going to star with Pierce Brosnan in the next James Bond. He's going to play James Bond's father. Imagine a 70-year-old James Bond. <laughs> what do they call it? License to fish? <laughs> The spy who loved me an hour after he took the blue pill. <laughs> oh, <well>. Old finger. <laughs> no. <laughs> Y'all get a lot of requests for Viagra, don't you? I wonder about that. Because Bob Dole was on the Larry King show the other night, and he was talking about he was part of the Viagra test group back in 1996. I mean, that, hey, he has charged up hills in Italy when we weren't really interested in Italy. And he's, been, he's one of the bravest men I've ever seen I mean, and to be part of the Viagra test group just to see if it worked back in 1996. That was amazing. Of course, it was a misunderstanding on his part. He thought it would help him get an election. You know, and, uh, <laughs> but, uh, And what does that have to do with recovery? Everything. <laughs> you see, in sobriety, you know, we have an old saying, if you visit, we have an old saying in the program, if you take a drunken horse thief and you sober him up, you have a sober horse thief, okay? So in sobriety, you know, I stop drinking. But in recovery, I have to stop stealing horses. <laughs> That's tougher than anything I ever did because I love stealing horses. That fixed me before I ever had a drink, you know. And, uh, and that's... That's what this, uh, this, this culture we live in right now has ceased to promote drinking uh, as so much as it, uh, as it did when I was raised. When I was raised in the 60s. You young people, if there's any young people here tonight under the age of 40, you have no idea that the baby boomers, and, and certainly everyone older than baby boomers, were raised in a culture where it was cool to drink. You know, that all changed the night of uh, March... 4th, 1983, and I happened to be there that night. Generations don't really end on the year zero, you know. They, uh, the, the big band era ended in 1953. The, the pop era ended when the Beatles landed in 64. And from 64 to 74 was really the 60s, okay. But from 74 to this night in 1983 was really the 70s, okay. And that was really an insane time. And uh, I was there the night it ended. Uh, Sandra Bernhardt, uh, was going to showcase at the comedy store for the King of Comedy. And she, Robert De Niro and Robin Williams and, um, and uh, John Belushi came in to take a look at her. And, she, and normally, Sandra, we started out on the same amateur night together in 1976. Normally, she would have a supper club crowd or a gay crowd, something where it was a little, little chicer crowd than, than a bunch of tourists at the comedy store. But that night, Sandra was on, and she just murdered the crowd, and she got the role. De Niro passed. He said, she, he said you, got the, you got the role. And so, uh, goodness, that was over. So the three of them took off for the Chateau Marmont. And John Belushi died that night. And from then on, from then on, uh, it stopped being cool to party in Los Angeles. You know, Nancy Reagan was in her heyday that night, I tell you. She had called The Tonight Show uh, January 21st, 1981, the day after Ronald Reagan took office. She told Fred DeCordova, the producer, and she called Grant Tinker, Mary Tyler Moore's husband, the president of NBC, 
No more cocaine jokes. And I'm telling you, it stripped us bare. In those days, all you had to do in Southern California was say the word cocaine, and people applauded. It was just an insane period of... From that day on, you know, recovery started creeping into the baby boom lexicon, and uh, it swept me along with it. Because by the, uh, by the mid-'80s, I was, I was not a vision for you. You know what I mean? Uh, I had, I want you to, I'm standing here before you. I want you to know I was, I was given every single chance. Absolutely every single chance. I was, I was next on the ladder right after Robin Williams on The Tonight Show. January 8, 1980. And I started popping them and killing them on The Tonight Show. But as soon as that show was over, I would start drinking and snorting and drinking and snorting and drinking and snorting, thinking I was having a great time. And in a lot of ways, I may have been. I may have been having a great time. But I was fixing something inside of me uh, with, with medicine that was slowly and surely killing me and particularly murdering my career. And I started going on uh, the, 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 the chain of, of rehabs that were so popular. All of a sudden, Rehab City popped up in the 80s. You'd have good ones, and you would have the ones that would try to drown you in alcohol and make you quit out of willpower. We had one of those folks in L.A., we called it Raleigh Hills. Y'all remember that? Aversion therapy. They would come on late at night with these cheap commercials saying, Raleigh Hills would like to know, are you an alcoholic? Well, take this simple test. Do you often ask for that fourth or fifth drink before breakfast? Do you find it impossible to drive without a beer between your legs? Did you make $60,000 last year on Safeway's Cash for Cans program? Was Otis your favorite character on the Andy Griffith show? And finally, is everybody in the living room looking at you right now? Oh, man! And suddenly, you know, the cops started clamping down on us, you know. You couldn't even drive through Beverly Hills without worrying, you know. To think you're driving drunk in Beverly Hills, the Beverly Hills police pull you over. They get out of their SLs. They walk up to you, they smell your breath, they look you in the eyes, and they give you the Beverly Hills sobriety test. They show you a picture of Ricardo Montalban and Fernando Lamas. And in your stupor, you have to tell which is which. <laughs> Don't guess Ricky Ricardo like I did. <laughs> or they'll throw you in the Beverly Hills jail. Bungalow 9. They had a prison riot there last night. They tried to serve them red wine with fish. <laughs> Terrible rackets they made. All these credit cards banging against the bar. <laughs> Perrier! 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 Oh, God, Garçon! Do you call this well done? Come on, men. We're going over the hedges. <laughs> you see it at the sign. The Beverly Hills Jail. A gated community. <laughs> You know, we were getting popped left and right. Johnny Carson was getting popped. We were all getting popped for DWI. It was getting really inconvenient. <laughs> and, um, but I really, to be honest with you, I was one of the first uh, showbiz poster children. You see a lot of the Robert Downey Jr. and the Ben Affleck and stuff like that. I was a pioneer in that. <laughs> I, was, I was one of the first, um, first uh, poster boys. 
uh, for recovery, and I kept failing time and time again. Uh, with a room full of alcoholics and Al-Anons at, uh, you know, in my uh, midst right here, the truth is I was getting sober for a woman and not for me. That's what uh, I had, uh, I had uh, developed uh, this sick relationship with a woman uh, of another religious faith who happened to be my boss and club owner at the comedy store. And, uh, yeah, I've been, you know, this was not my life partner, but it was someone that I could con out of money to get more cocaine from. And that's what I had selected as I got sicker and sicker and sicker. And um, by the time uh, four rehabs rolled around, I was pretty well considered the uh, pretty well considered washed up. You know, it, it was really really bad being the you know the youngest guy in Hollywood washed up or the oldest guy still with potential. You know, it uh, it, it it sickened me. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and maybe for the one time in my life, my pride worked in my favor because. I would not be regarded like this. And I don't know if, if your pride ever helped you, but at one time in my life, my pride helped me. I'm, one, I'm from one of the great families of English history. And I'm, and I'm asking the doorman at the comedy store to loan me $5 so I can get a six-pack to go up, walk up King's Road, you know, talk the cocaine dealer into funding me a half a gram so I can snort coke and drink until 6 in the morning before I think of my next con to stay high and stay high and stay high. It had gone from being fun to being my job. Okay. And as it became my job, it became my absolute virtual and certain destruction. And uh, I was the last one to know. To me, you know, I was, I was still Errol Flynn. But uh, to everyone else, you know, I was a town drunk. And uh, I, uh, I was given, uh, I, was, I was going to rehab to rehab to rehab, uh, Orange County uh, Care Unit, the uh, Tulsa had a great, great uh, rehab at St. John's. And we have a guy in Tulsa, just like Earl Husband, the grand old man of sobriety there, named Gil Baker, took me under his personal wing. And I fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous, thanks to, thanks to Gil Baker. But I got back to L.A. and I couldn't stay sober. Everyone was still snorting coke in the parking lot, smoking pot and uh, drinking. All my friends could party, why can't I? All my friends could party, why can't I? And every single time in 82, 83, 84, 85... It kept taking me out. And my, my appearances on the Johnny Carson show got further and further apart until finally it was like six months between appearances by 1986. And uh, I had about two people on my side at that time. Mitzi Shore, the owner of the comedy store, and Johnny Carson. It, I, everybody else had given up on me. Absolutely given up on me. And uh, I, I decided to uh, try it one last time. And uh, no, I didn't. It was decided for me. Uh, I... I was kicked out of the comedy store until I got well. And Mitzi had Sam Kennison and Ollie Joe Prater, both of them dead now from this disease, bless their souls, drive me to the, to the Betty Ford Center. But they brought in my luggage, and the nurse looked up at him and said, Two? <laughs> and they said, No, <laughs> wait till you see what we've got in the car. <laughs> so they dragged me in there, and uh, thank goodness for uh, after Blue Cross insurance at the time. <laughs> And, uh, and got me in there, and I, I brought some books with me because I expected to uh, enjoy catching up on my history you know, for the first few days while I detoxed. You know. It's the golden age of detox. They give you some Valium, and you'd think about things. <laughs> it was such a gentle you know, place that my previous detoxes had been. Those people at the Betty Ford Center had me in calisthenics by 4.30 that afternoon. <laughs> and there was a naval intelligence officer there named Dan Beardshire. You folks from Los Angeles would know him from St. John's Hospital. 
He went there afterwards. And Dan Beardshear called me into his uh, office and threw me up against the wall. And he said, Argus, we're on to you, party boy. We know your M.O. You come to these rehabs and you make these poor $300 a week counselors feel like they're making progress with you. you know, while you drink Kool-Aid, eat cookies, and chase women for 28 days. We know what you're up to. Well, we've, we figured things out. We've made some calls to L.A. We've made sure you don't have any place to go back to unless you agree to a couple of things. First of all, you're going to do a fourth and fifth step right here. Segregated from the rest of the unit, you're going to do a fourth and fifth step right here. Or we're kicking you out of here and you've got no place to go. We've seen to that. We even called your folks. We're not going to bail you out this time. And secondly, you're going to agree to go to uh, Scottsdale, Arizona for 90 days afterwards to uh, recover at a halfway house. All of a sudden, it kind of piqued my grandiosity because I'm thinking, well, I'm going from Beverly Hills to Rancho Mirage to Scottsdale. I can handle that. <laughs> Doesn't sound like a trail of tears to me. <laughs> so I, I agreed. And the miracle slowly started to happen, okay, because I agreed to do what they told me to. I, a God-given opportunity was presented itself to me in the lowest moment of my life. It happened my third day there. My third day there, I'd made a lot of friends real quickly, and it was my 35th birthday. Some 18- and 19-year-old guys walked in and surprised me one day during lunch in front of 150 people there in the center with a birthday cake with 35 candles on it. And these kids, I had no idea what they were doing, but they were about to mock me. This was their first rehab, you know. And here I am, you know, old Argus, you know, feeling like the oldest kid in junior high sitting in this rehab and they're singing happy birthday to you happy birthday to you take the next take the next plane to vegas and we'll see you back here soon <laughs> and they just thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever done to somebody and there i was getting laughed at by these desert rats and that's when my pride kicked in i said i am not going to feel like this again i looked up i said okay god whatever you want for me i'll do it and i remembered what they said about doing that fourth step I went and talked to my counselor, and I got to work on it. And for uh, the next 28 days, I took three hours a night into working this fourth step. And I wrote every fear, every resentment, every secret, everything I didn't want anybody to know. Put my part in it and what it said about me. I resented Jay Leno because he was ahead of me on the Tonight Show wheel. That affected my pride. It showed my lack of trust in God's mission for my life. It showed me trying to control it. I wrote a hundred of those things, a hundred of the women, a hundred of the job resentments, a hundred of the fears I had, but I'm not going to make it. Okay. I had these fears, and I wrote every single one of them down. And the day before I checked out, they had an Episcopalian rector come in and listen to it. There are plenty of those in Rancho Mirage. You'll, you'll meet them next year. <laughs> and uh, the Episcopalian rector sat down, and we, we sat there like a, you know, a couple of, of Anglo-Saxons in the afternoon showing teeth. And I read him every secret of my life. And he took the list. We burned it. And I walked back to group, you know, where some great friends of mine were sitting, you know, in the business. There was Tammy Wynette, there was Stevie Nicks, Tommy James and Tommy James and the Shondells. And it was Jerry Lee Lewis's first day in rehab. <laughs> and there's about 25 of us in the group, and they look up at me, and they're just staring at me. They're all staring at me with God as my witness, with, with their mouths open. I said, what's going on, guys? They said, Argus, you're glowing. And I did not realize it, but at that moment I was having my first spiritual experience as a result of working the steps. And again, with God as my witness, since I have shared that 
fourth step with that Episcopalian rector. Thank you, God, I have not wanted a drink or a drug since. I found out later on why. Once somebody knew me and knew my secrets, I was connected to this planet just as surely as alcohol and cocaine used to connect me to this planet. Somebody knows me, I'm okay. I don't need to fix me to make you all right anymore. Then about uh, a year and a half later, I got around to... uh, and I, if there's any newcomers in here, do not wait this long. I got around to finally doing my eighth and ninth step. And I wrote everybody I ever owed, everybody I ever hurt, and I saved the toughest one for last. It took me a full year to do it. And on the last night, uh, before I, uh, the last night of my ninth step, I took my former girlfriend, Mitzi Shore, to eat in Westwood at uh, Mario's Italian Restaurant. And we talked about old times, talked about store, where everything was busy, jumping, doing ABC this, that. We had all kinds of TV production to talk about. But finally, I, I cut it off and I said, I need to tell you something. When I was uh, with you in the early 80s, I used to uh, tiptoe out of bed at night and steal $100 bills out of your wallet, coast down Doheny to Sunset and Doheny uh, so your dog wouldn't wake up. I wouldn't start the car. And, uh, and I would buy cocaine from the dealer there and stay at her house until 6.30 or 7 in the morning drive back up and tiptoe into the guest quarters and tell you that I decided to sleep downstairs because I had a cold and I didn't want to wake you up. And that's what I was doing time and time and time again. And I, and I did it 42 times to my best recollection. And here's 42 $100 bills I'd like you to have, have you know, with my, with my sincere apology. And uh, you know, she, she broke down crying. You know. She's a club owner and she loves money. <laughs> but she loves me and she, she saw, she knew what I was doing. And, uh, and she uh, said, thank you so much, Argus, and uh, uh, you're going to do great things. And that, that feeling of forgiveness was one of the greatest feelings in my life. I was so afraid of what she would do to me once I told her the truth about me. And for that moment, there was nothing between her and me but God. And God is love. All I had to do was tell somebody the truth. That night, I dropped her off up on Doheny and... Twenty minutes later, I was on stage at the comedy store. It was a light crowd, just a real light crowd. There was only about 25, 30 people there. There was, there was something wrong that night, but there was just 25 people. It was a Wednesday night, and I was third on the show, third out of 12 comics. Later on, there would be Richard might be on that night, or uh, Paul Mooney, or some other gangbang, uh, absolute power nightclub comic. I was just up there trying out television material. Yeah. And so I started. I went on stage. And they started going crazy over this new stuff. It was just, you know, at the time they were, uh, they were President Bush, the first jokes, uh, maybe Saddam Hussein, maybe, you know. But I mean, they were just going wild. And I, I couldn't believe it. And after 20 minutes, something happened at the comedy store that had never happened to me. And all the great, tremendous Saturday night crowds I'd had there, this size in the main room. And I'm only third on the show and I'm completely clean. This, this very multicultural, uh, hip, L.A. street Sunset Boulevard crowd stood up at 9.45 at night with most of the show left to go and gave me a standing ovation. I, it was a st- and I was, I mean, I'm a pro. I'm not, I'm not I'm thankful. I'm puzzled. You know? What's going on here? And I walk outside and I ask the doorman, Harris Pete, who is not a sympathetic type. He's a practice goalie for the L.A. Kings. And I said, Harris, what on the hell was going on there? You know, I'm not going, did you see? They love me? No, no, we're pro. I said, what the, what's going on in there? What happened? And Harris said, man, I couldn't believe it, man. You were glowing. 
I had a physical glow on me for the second time in my life from working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and sharing my absolute truth with someone. And, and a crowd felt it. You know, a lot like I feel right here tonight. I just felt this oneness with God and with you that I feel right now. And I know now what my grand sponsor, the great Chuck Chamberlain, was talking about. You know, I have a, a, a great uh, woman sponsor with 35 years. She's also she's an Al-Anon. What was it? She said, just before an Al-Anon dies, somebody else's life flashes before. (laughs) (laughs) And she absolutely kicks my tail from, you know, all over over town. But her sponsor was Chuck Chamberlain, and I I listened to his tapes all the time. He was dead broke in 1945 in Beverly Hills with his son Richard Chamberlain, the actor, and uh, his, his wife and family. And 40 years later, he died with one of the largest fortunes and certainly the largest funeral in the history of Los Angeles. And it was all about oneness with God. Oneness with God. You know, I'm not here to take anything from you. I don't want anything from you. I'm here to share me with you. I don't want anything from you. What can I give to you? And that's vital for me. Because my recovery did not end when I stopped drinking and when I stopped drugging. My recovery began when I stopped drinking and when I stopped, stopped drugging. That's when the work started. Because... I went through over shopping. I went through overeating. I went through uh, tobacco. I went through sugar. And then chasing emotionally unavailable women. Starting to hit up a little nerve here, aren't we? You know? Absolutely. Anything that didn't want me, I wanted. You know? And that, that was really tough. That, and that, that dawned on me at about age four of sobriety. If you didn't want me, I was yours. And I got to the bottom, uh, did some really hard work. There were old-timers in Los Angeles that really hadn't worked a lot of this stuff out. You know, they, they, they sort of, big book, 12 and 12, and we're just going to hang in there and not drink and use. what some of these guys were doing. And they would say things like, I could walk into a room full of a thousand women, and if 999 of them want me, I walk right up to the one who doesn't and say, honey, I'm all yours. But that wasn't the truth for me. I found out it was more devious than that. I could walk into a room of a thousand women. 999 of them don't want me. I walk right up to the one who does. And I'll turn her into a rejecter. <laughs> Just to make a good sport of it. Because in my recovery, I fight my enemy every single day. And that enemy is isolation. And by subtracting all the ways that I isolate myself from you. I draw myself closer to God and to you. Because I want to be above you and beneath you, but never part of you. You know, our, what is it? our motto in Los Angeles is, I may not be much, but I'm all I ever think about. You know? <laughs> I would much rather impress you and run away than, than, than connect with you. Okay? And it is by subtracting all of these things Sober drinks in my 15 years of sobriety, one day at a time, and they are tough. You know, from from, from tobacco to over shopping to love addiction to all the way to lust itself, all the way to lust itself has been the journey, the odyssey of my recovery. And I find out as each one of them get tougher, as each one of them get more difficult to shed, the rewards get greater as I shed them. 
And I only hope that, that someday I can stand up here with the amount of time that, say, Earl Husband has and share with you all the progress I was able to make between, say, 15 and 30, the progress I made from now to 15. Because I found that by subtraction and sharing my truth, I'm really able to reflect God's light, conduct His warmth, and radiate His joy to you and for me. Because what I thought was the worst thing ever in my life, my bottom on November 3, 1986, turned out to be the greatest day in my life. Because from then on, I had a new employer, and that was God. And if I can continue turning my will and my life over to Him, you know what I find out? I find out the greatest secret of recovery. And that is that God has better plans for me than even I do. You know, under my own will, I've learned one thing and one thing only. I don't get what I want. I get what I am. So if I can be at one with God, all I can be is of service to you and a, and a grateful beneficiary of His miracles. Because I've got friends who party just like me, and they're all dead now. And I've got friends like me who got well. And here we are together, sharing a moment with God and each other. I thank you so much. I'm Argus Hamilton. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Appreciate it.